Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is brought to you by Uncle Vernon's Plywood Emporium, preventing unwanted junk mail since 1997. Open six days a week because there's no post on Sundays. Welcome, welcome, and Happy New Year. Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I am your host, Ben Siders, with your other host, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk is in the captain of the Enterprise. Kirk, how was your New Year? Uh, I don't know yet. Yeah, we don't know. Recording this uh, before New Year's Day. Uh, we're, we're hoping there actually is a new year. We don't have any Y2K <laughs> bugs out there. You know, if there's a 2018 bug, and again, if you're too young to know what Y2K is, go look it up on the internet from our yeah, last I think episode. The, the next big deadline like that, the 32-bit Linux or Unix uh, operating systems, we're going to all have a problem in the 2030. We talked about that, actually, yeah. like, I think our second episode. So, yeah, so hopefully uh, everybody had a, a good holiday, a good new year. And uh, uh, in the spirit of staying kind of lighthearted on the holidays, today is mailbag day. Today is mailbag day, so we're going to dive deep into the mailbag and see what you guys had to ask us for questions. And we have we have quite a few here, um, and these kind of run the gamut from uh, legal questions to more just general uh, uh, geek culture questions. So hopefully there's something here that appeals to everybody. Also, Kirk, Star Wars Episode Eight. I bet it was great. I'm sure it was great. No, it probably, <laughs> well, the question is, was it disappointing? Actually, I wish I knew. Yeah, we'll find out shortly. Uh, probably in our next episode, we'll go back and, and score our predictions from uh, from uh, the episode earlier in December and figure out where we're at. Since we can't do that yet. I can't do that yet. Okay, question number one comes to us from Ed from Isco. We actually met Ed. Kirk and I had a beer with him up in Grand yep. Rapids. Okay, uh, Ed says, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, a lot of people listening to the podcast might be fans with a stake in something. At the end, can you give people a really quick bullet point explanation of what they need to know or at least what factors they need to consider when making personal decisions about how to interact with the law as geeks? Not legal advice, of course, but something people can take away with them even if it's just a quick summary of the difficult issues involved. Kirk, what do you think? Um, it's a great it's, idea. It's a great idea. It would be really nice if we could. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the problem you get into with it. I, I joke about it sort of repeatedly, and it's when, when you hear talking heads on TV, principally on TV, a lot of times one of the things you'll see is, let me make it very simple for you. And my comment with that is I said what they're saying is, let me make it very wrong for you. Yeah, yeah. I think I, we can definitely summarize kind of the, the key talking points of what we went over because we do sort of, you know, free-range chicken our way around <laughs> around these topics and, and yep. sort of talk about whatever comes up. Um, but yeah, I think we can try and at least wrap up with a summary of, of what we've been talking about. Um, it's really hard to say this is what you should or shouldn't do. For one, if you want to do that, you need to pay us. But, <laughs> but, but for two, um, you know, there's always going to be other facts yep. that, that, you know, you listen to us talk and we say, well, but in this situation, this might happen. But in any given situation, there will be additional facts that are relevant. Yep. Part of what a good attorney does for you is ask questions and help you figure out what those facts are so you know, you know, see, the attorney has all the information yep. needed to give you advice. A lot of the things you bump into, and again, this is one of those, if you ever go to law school, it's one of those things that you encounter very quickly is you walk into law school thinking you understand like what laws are and as you start learning about law, what you discover is the fact of, and, and you know, law school professors get very into this, the idea that there's no black line rules. Everything's essentially a shade of gray. Yeah, and people sort of misconceive the law as being this, This we're going to talk about this in a couple questions later, that the law is this this magic spell book that if you just, you know, invoke the right incantation, magical things happen. Yeah, and I think the problem with it is, is while that may arguably be true, all the incantations are incomplete. You yes. have to make them up and you have to make sure you make them up correctly based upon what you need it to actually do. It's, it's 
it's a little bit like a genie's bottle where mm-hmm. it's to be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Um, and you know that's th- that's the biggest problem in conjunction with discussing anything associated with law is you can look at it and say I have all these facts. Hey, you gave us ten facts associated with this case. I have the same ten facts, so obviously my outcome must be the same. But the answer is there was an eleventh that wasn't talked about, and your eleventh is different, and that actually yeah. is important. And, and oftentimes that's where new court decisions come from. Is you've got a case that seems to neatly fit one set of facts, so it should come out a certain way, but there's an additional fact that maybe it seems justice should motivate a different outcome. Yeah, and and the reality of, and again, I think what you really need to keep in mind in conjunction with all of this is no two fact situations are ever the same. I mean, I love the old proverb, and it's one of those I think is great, which is no man ever said steps in the same river twice. Mm-hmm. That's very true of the law because the you know it's not the same man and it's not the same river. Yep. And that's very true of the law, which is you know no court case is ever the same because it's not the same case and it's not the same law. Exactly right. Um, and Ed, we're going to try and get to Grand Rapids at some point, so we'll uh, we'll get yeah. together again for some for some drinks. If at, I can uh, talk this guy and actually going <laughs> back up for Michigan Beer Fest in February, it's, well, it's so doing cold. That. And I've gotten soft living in St. Louis, but it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. Okay, question number two. This guy came to us back in August, so I've been very negligent in not getting this out here sooner. From Mike L. in St. Louis. Hey, Ben and Kirk. The show is amazing. Thanks for the work you put in to produce it. Thank you. I had an idea for a show topic. My wife and I are big Disney geeks, and the story of how Disney purchased the land for Walt Disney World and set up the acquisition to retain development, land use, quasi-governmental control of the resort is fascinating. And Mike basically wants to know, is this a topic we would consider doing someday? I think so. Yeah, I think we definitely do it. Though I think the one thing to keep in mind is we are not real estate lawyers. Um, no, no. <laughs> and yeah, the, uh, the idea of how to have Mike this, L come on yep. and because I, I, I gather from there's more to his email than this. I gather that he's looked into this and like knows some of the background. Yeah, and I think definitely there is some. I, I know some of the stuff that's been discussed about it. There's some interesting stuff that went on in conjunction with it. But we talked about the idea, and hopefully, sort of, and now that we're in a new year, um, we will bring in some guests to talk about some other areas of the law, places we lack expertise. Um, this is definitely a topic that I think is very interesting, as much. You may look at it and say land use law or real estate law is not interesting and not relevant to geeks. Well, actually, it could be. Yeah, isn't Disney building a gigantic Star Wars resort now in the same area? Yes, uh, themed off of it where you actually go to like the Millennium Falcon's hangar and stuff. And yeah. quite frankly, it looks awesome. It, it does. I, I told uh, we took our kids to Disney World a couple years ago, and I told my wife we're we not, went. We went earlier this year. Yeah, I told my wife we're not, we're Last not year, going back until uh, that is done, and the first year crowds are gone. So that is our <laughs> timeline for going back because that's the only place I want to go. Okay, question. Question number three comes to us from John P. in Kalamazoo. I have a question about protocols. I am a network engineer, and I've always wondered who owns the main internet protocols, and do all these different router companies have to pay somebody to make a router that works with TCP, IP, or internet? Thanks for answering my question. What do you think, Kirk? Um, I mean, the answer is most of these are set by standard setting organizations. Yeah. Um, and so is there a law as to what it is? No. But there's, there's not a, really an owner. I mean, yeah. somebody is responsible for the standard, but there's not an owner in the sense of you have to pay, nobody has to pay W3 for yeah. permission to, to write a web server that speaks HTTP. Yeah, the, some sense they do, and I think the thing that's worth noting, I think a couple of things worth talking about with these, these standard setting organizations do set standards. You've got companies like W3, uh, IEEE, um, pretty much anybody major in the industry. Uh, one I've actually had to work with in conjunction with it is the National Fire Protection people. Um, and you know they set standards as to what it is. And the idea is that basically you try to meet standards, you're targeting standards. In some sense, you're obligated to meet standards by the law. So the law may say, in order to do this, in order to say something is this, you have to meet the standard of this particular organization. The one key thing about it is, for the most part, to meet standards, you don't necessarily have to pay anything. Where you do have to meet a standard and pay something, in a lot of cases, is if the people 
people setting the standards have patent protection to something that involve the standard is going to use. So if I actually patented mm-hmm. an algorithm that the standard is now going to use, that patent holder is actually required to basically disclose that that's part of the standard and license it in what's called fair and reasonable terms. So basically anybody who uses the standard is required to use the patent because they have to use the standard, mm-hmm. but they can do so at the same terms every other person who uses the standard now, can. Is that, is that license compulsory? Do they have the option to say, no, we're not going to offer a license at all? If they, if they say we're not going to offer a license at all, it cannot be part of the standard, basically, is sort yeah. of the, the things that come in in conjunction with these. And the value of this is because there was some concern of the idea of patent technology sneaking into a standard, the standard getting set, and then it suddenly being a, an infringement in order to do it. Now, there's some involvement of the people who were involved in setting the standard need to be involved in the patenting. There's essentially an agreement that says you have to do this. But the, actually, standard setting and the law of standard setting is an area that has a lot of law around it, even though it has no law necessarily directly on mm-hmm. point with it. It's usually, again, the law directly on it is if you abide by the standard, the law protects you. Um, and I, I happen to know um, the, the guy who actually chairs up the, the uh, standards um, committee of the American Intellectual Property Law Association. And it's, a, it's an active, active area where you get a lot of this just how do you deal with standards? And how do you deal with standards where following a standard could cause you to do something else, uh, particularly infringe a patent? And the answer to it is is they've tried to build legislation around that. So who's responsible for deciding if the terms are fair and reasonable? Is that is that dealt with by – is there an agency or is it just sort of the market will decide if you don't like it, take them to court? I think basically it comes in with the standard-setting organization for the most part is going to tell you here's what it is and you can either decide it is fair and reasonable or you can decide it's I not. I think they'd be motivated to make sure it's darn fair and reasonable so that nobody goes marching off to court to say, hey, these yeah, guys are being And that's bad. usually what happens is if it goes – I think if it goes to the idea of somebody saying it's not fair and reasonable, you're going to have that. Now, keep in mind this is not necessarily something new in the internet. I mean – there are standards associated with, you know, phone lines that, you know, oh, came yeah. around. And, IEEE uh, designed the, the floating point storage format for, yeah. uh, for, for decimal values in computers. Yeah, what I was involved a lot with is actually the, um, the standards for um, transmitting cell phones mm-hmm. um, and the, the various trans- so things associated with that and identifying cell phones. They're all standards associated with that. They're all pre-internet in many respects. Yeah, we could we could probably do a whole episode on the law around how how things like protocols and standards work. It's uh it's increasingly important because so many of these protocols and standards just sort of emerge organically through through the private market. It's not like I mean the government doesn't usually step in and say this is how it's going to be. Yep. They kind of wait to see what dominates and then use that. Yeah, I think the other thing with the standard setting organization is actually if you're very if you're interested in the idea of standards and how these standards get set, your best bet is to actually join one of these organizations. You know, join up with the IEEE, join yeah, on your standards committees. Um, if you have expertise in the area, most of them are very interested in taking you and very interested in having you help out. You always will probably have to get impro- uh, something from your employer, the approval from your employer to do this because of the fact of this, if you're there, you have to agree to some of this minimum licensing stuff that they may not necessarily want to agree to. But I think most employers are probably very you know, fond of their employees working on standard-setting organizations. Yeah, it's, it's, it gives them some cloud and some recognition for being involved in these things. Yep. Okay, question four from James S. in St. Louis. James writes, I am a programmer and I work for a company in telecom, but at night I am a game developer too, and especially card and board games. In fact, Ben, we met once at the Drink Up at Orbitz. I remember this. And talked about a strategy board game game I am making. Uh, yeah, we had a whole conversation about Warhammer. In fact, this is the guy I told you I need to introduce you to uh, <laughs> yep. a couple, uh, last year. Anyway, you guys talked about how sometimes code you write at work is yours and sometimes not. Can you talk more about that? Like if I am writing down ideas for a card game during work hours at the office, does my company now own my game? 
I think the answer to does the company own my game is probably no. Does the company own the specific idea you wrote down can be a trickier question. Yeah, the, the, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind, the first thing about this is, you know, <clears throat> this is sort of a very specific legal scenario. We can't tell you for your scenario yeah. just because we don't know all the facts. A lot goes into the, something um, like yeah, this. Yeah, a lot goes into these calculations. Are, you, are so, you writing it down in your personal notebook on your lunch shift? Yeah. And you're, and you're an hourly worker and you're not getting paid? Well, then that's a pretty compelling case. And what case. do you do yeah. and sort of things like that. And that's the, the thing you really bump into in a lot of these things is that we talked about previously the idea that a lot of things are very fact-specific in the mm-hmm. law. And that's one of these cases here. Things are very fact-specific in the law. A lot of this depends on what exactly is the employment contract you have with your employer. If you have one. Yeah, if you have one what at all. What are the nature and of your job obligations? Governing. The second one maybe what state are you in? Yeah. You know, what state is your employer is your employer technically headquartered or incorporated in? Those laws may be different. Um, California has very different laws than a lot of other states. Tech companies are increasingly having policies around this. Like Google, I think, is famous for having the, the four-day work week and the fifth day, I think. You get yeah. to do whatever you want. But then Google owns whatever you develop. So you get a whole day just to screw around, you know, and do whatever you want, but it's there. So yeah. I would say to be safe, you know, and this is this was my personal practice when I worked in IT. I never developed things that I wanted to eventually say were mine yeah. during work hours or, or at the office. Uh, I didn't even develop it working at home from my desk, you know, at home. I would wait until work hours were over and document yeah. what was mine. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing you can say in conjunction with this is the the more distinct you make it from whatever you're doing for a day job, um, the easier it is to say it's yours. Yeah. Again, there's no you know no bright line there. There's no clear space where it becomes yours versus it doesn't become yours. It's always a matter of degree. And the real key, I think, in, in doing this type of thing is, and the thing to keep in mind, it is very, very dependent on your fact scenario. And this is an area where you really want to talk to an attorney. Yeah. If this is becoming worrisome, you know, you've got something like this, you can talk to your attorney. An attorney can review your employment contract and say, okay, we look like this is okay. They're never going to be able to say it is okay. Yeah. But they can look at it and say, we think this is okay, or this is how you should be doing it to give yourself the most protection. And that's really the thing. The basic thing about it is, though, and I think the, the idea of summarizing, you know, what the, the piece of law is, is the further you can get away from your work, the yep. better. The, yeah, the more facts to make it clear, there's a, t- a clear separation yeah. here. I'll tell you one thing I used to run into is I was a, I was a game developer, still kind of do a little bit of that on the side too, uh, James. And what would often happen is, you know, if, if you're in technology, you know that you tend to solve the same kind of problems over and over. And at some point, I had the need to write this this massive merge sort algorithm to, to deal with something for, for a game I was working on. And I ran into a very similar problem at work. And rather than reinvent the wheel and, and rewrite the same thing, I just connected to my home computer from work, downloaded my algorithm, adapted it to solve the problem at work, and used it. So this is sort of the backwards case where I'm giving them code I wrote separately that I would argue was completely mine. But now what? Now do they own that code or am I just licensing it to them? Yep. And this is almost never covered by your employment agreements. So, yeah, and this is where these things get complicated and that's the problem. Yeah. That's what In that case, times, I just assumed you know, that at this point it may as well be theirs and I can kiss it goodbye. But you know, yeah, it's but at the same time, that, you probably didn't bother. It probably didn't bother you to be quite truthful. No, I, d- I didn't care. I just yeah. wanted to get my, my job done and, and my boss was happy and everybody wins. And that game never got made so it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Okay, uh, next one. This is a good one. From Jenny O in Memphis. Uh, What is the difference between Circle C, Circle R, TM, and SM? So there's actually quite a bit of difference between them. Uh, First off, let's start off and let's kick the Circle C out because that's copyright. Yeah, that's a whole separate thing. So so Circle C is an indication of copyright. um, And the issue with it is is that's just an indication of copyright. It's a claim, basically. It's a claim, basically saying you have a copyright. And to be clear, you can use that on anything that you think in good faith is copyright. Yep, which is anything that's fixed in form that you've generated. So So you don't have to do anything with the government to say, Copy. You don't have to use the circle C. You can just write copyright. I see yep. people a lot of times do copyright circle C 
Well, that's redundant. You, yeah. you only need one of the two. I mean, putting both doesn't yeah, hurt. See, it's just but... simply you claiming that you have a copyright in it. You will notice. I mean, as, as IP attorneys, we give presentations at things. They have a copyright notice on the bottom of them. You know, yep. our PowerPoint slides have a copyright notice on the bottom of them. You can use that circle C whenever you think you have a, again something in fixed form which you think you have a copyright in, which you think is yours. You're entitled to use that circle C. Well, circle R is different. Yep. Circle R, TM, and SM all go together. And PM. Um, it's also PM, and actually, I'm going to throw in CM, which is the oh, only yeah, 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 mark. Um, so those are all indications of trademark. The key to it is. Circle R is different from all the rest. So TM, SM, CM, PM are all indications of, I think I have a common law trademark. So TM, short for trademark, yeah. SM, Which short would mean for that you have mark. used your mark in commerce and you have sort of, you know, without doing anything official, you know, so, so I go and open a, a gaming studio, I make a website, and I say, you know, Ben Sider's Games. I now have at least an argument that I've established some common law trademark rights to Ben Sider's games as applied to video game production yep. services. And that's what a common law trademark is. It's basically the idea that you have associated the good, or, the good or service which you are providing to the mark in commerce. And the only difference between TM, SM, CM, PM is the type of mark yeah. that it is. Trademark, service mark. What's P? It's, I can't remember. Phono record? Uh, phone, maybe phono record. Phono mark? Phono mark. Is that for audio like marks? That. It's audio marks. I've never used it. And then CM is certification mark, yeah. uh, which for the most part you wouldn't use. Very, es- very esoteric mark that most people don't use. For all use. practical purposes, people pretty much use TM, even on services. Yep. You can pretty much use TM, quite frankly, is all of it. Again, all this is a claim of common law trademark rights. It actually has no real legal meaning, to be quite truthful. It is um, helpful when you're pursuing a registration of a trademark, because yep. then you can show, well, I clearly use it as a trademark. I said it's my trademark. <laughs> yeah, and, and it also be useful, obviously, if you have to enforce <clears> it as a common law trademark to show that you've been using it, that you believe it to be that. Yeah. Circle R is different. Circle R means you have a registered trademark. That means the trademark is registered registered with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and you cannot use it until that registration is complete. Yeah. That doesn't mean file for it. That means it's done and all the way through the process. We, we see, uh, I see a lot of companies, even if they have registered trademarks, continue to use TM anyway, yep. particularly if they're doing business internationally, because they, they, they're, they're worried about running afoul of false marking laws yep. overseas where you say R in the U.S., but then you send it overseas, and it's not necessarily registered overseas, and now you have potentially misrepresented your trademark yep. status. And it's important to keep in mind that mis- use of the circle R can actually present you with liability. It can be an antitrust violation mm-hmm. um, because you're basically saying you have a tra- you registered trademark in something you don't. Um, and so that is a misrepresentation actively. Now, again, a TMSM is a statement that you believe it to be a trademark. It doesn't really have a lot of legal meaning, so you can usually get away in conjunction this with that. This is one of those rare questions where we can provide, I think, some pretty straightforward advice. When in doubt, use TM. Yeah, when in doubt, use TM. I think the, the answer to it is, is if you have not specifically registered a trademark, you do not have a document from the United States Patent and Trademark Office that says, here is your registered trademark with and a nice fancy number, li- yeah. ribbon on it and stuff like that. You cannot use Circle R. Question six from Ken D. This is from the internet. (laughs) Why don't you guys talk more about the Marvel and DC movies? Did you see the Infinity War trailer? Uh, we did see We it. did see the Infinity War trailer. Very compelling. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, it's, I actually got a, I was sent an article, which I sent to Ben afterwards the next day, which was literally a guy going through and saying how the Infinity War trailer was basically a textbook case on how to make a good trailer. <laughs> and was. I have to entirely agree with the guy who wrote it. Yeah, um, we, were, we were doing odds on which major character is going to die in, in that movie. All of them. somebody will. All of them. Um, <laughs> no. Um, but I the, love Josh Brolin as Thanos, by the way. It's <laughs> such a great, a great yeah. casting call. The, the thing that I have. A, I think the reason we don't talk a lot about the Marvel and DC movies, and it's, I'll say this personally as to what it is, I was never actually that into superheroes. Um, I got into comic books a little bit, but actually most of the comic books I read were Star Wars comic books. Yeah, same here. And unfortunately, when it also comes to the superheroes, most of the ones I read were the... Um, uh, adult superheroes, if anybody knows Preacher. Um, I was very into Preacher um, as, as sort of, you know, things I read, which is... 
not something you ever want your children to read. Um, let's just put it that am, way. I was in law school, so it wasn't a big deal. But I'm not familiar with with Preacher. I, I was never into the conventional superhero comic books. I did read and collect the Star Wars comics uh, and I liquidated my collection quite some time ago. Uh, I, I do like the movies, but I haven't seen many of the DC movies. We saw you saw Wonder Woman, right? I haven't. I still haven't seen haven't Wonder seen Woman. That? that was pretty good. The, the problem I've got with a lot of the superhero movies right now is my kids want to see them, and so it's one of those where it's almost I, we, all PG thirteen. Our kids are not quite there. You know? Yeah, and that's the thing is it's sort of a we, we kind of want to like you know not not let them see them, not have them see them, but at the same time, when are we going to go see them? Because then that would be a movie we'd yeah. have to go see in our movie night. There's I just can't keep up with see. the Marvel movies. Like there's one every couple of months, and yeah. I, I I can't keep up with them all, and I just haven't watched. I've watched the major ones. I've seen. I've seen the, the origin movies from most. I haven't seen the latest Spider-Man one. Yeah, I've, I've seen, seen the, latest the Avenger ones, I think. No, I didn't see Civil War. No, that's Captain America. See, Spider-Man. I can't even keep track of it. <laughs> um, we don't talk about it because it's just hard to keep up on it, whereas with Star Wars, it's one movie a year. It's also, again, it's, it's a little bit of sort of what we see and stuff like that. I mean, I see, I watch Star Wars with my kids, you know, things along those lines. I don't watch um, the, and the And have you watched Stranger Things yet? yet? I still have not watched oh, Stranger Things. We'll I was, about we that. were trying to do it last weekend, um, but didn't get a chance to sort of... The problem is, is I know I'm going to binge watch it when I start, <laughs> so I have to have the time to do it. But the other thing with it, and I think the, the thing for a lot of the comic book stuff, again, for me, is it's... It's a huge area of geek culture that, in some sense, I don't necessarily feel that invested um, in. No, it's not that I'm not in, in invested or interested in it. It's that I literally don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about it because there's so much back history in there conjunction is, yeah. with these things. Um, I have a good friend who's seriously into superheroes, and you know, he tells me some of these stories, and I'm like, these sound fascinating. Like, I'd love to do them. I went and saw Watchmen with him. And that when was it first great. Came out. I love that. And him giving me the backstory for Watchmen and like how it had come about and stuff like that made the movie that much better. I mean, yeah. I loved the movie to begin with, but it was one of those where you know it's it just made the movie that much better. I usually go like after I see one of these, then I go back and kind of look up more on the characters and the background and whatnot. Yeah, and because reading it in advance just doesn't do much for me. Like it's just reading somebody. It's like reading a Cliff Notes version of a, of a book you're supposed to read for English class. It's just yeah. not that exciting. But once I've seen it and I understand the relationships, it's much more interesting. Um, but I just, I, I think the, the answer to your question, Ken, really is there's only so much time in the day. And so uh, the superhero stuff just kind of, I wouldn't say it falls to the wayside. Yeah. It's just less of a priority. I think we're definitely going to talk about some of it at some point in time. Infinity War, movies, for sure. Infinity War, I think we're almost going to end up saying this because it looks so good. <laughs> okay, question number seven. This is from Kuno on Facebook. Kuno writes, I hate it when people talk about, quote, stealing IP or, quote, pirating music. Because I don't think those terms are accurate. Isn't IP an abstract right? If it doesn't really exist, how can you steal it? I think it's rhetoric to stigmatize all file sharing, even for legitimate purposes. What do you think? Well, first off, I think the thing about it is, and one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about stealing and pirating, it's almost always in the context of copyright. Yeah, it's infringement is the and technical it's infringement, legal term. But infringement is the legal term. However, there are criminal penalties under copyright, which is not true for other IP. Yeah. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind, which is there is criminal copyright infringement. There is not criminal trademark infringement, for the most part. There is not criminal patent infringement, truly no criminal patent infringement. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of those things where there is criminal copyright infringement. And actually, there's a lot of criticism of IP laws of the fact that there shouldn't be criminal that's copyright That's why the FBI warning shows up before yep. movies, is to warn you that there are criminal penalties for it. Now, But how often is that used, really? I I 
always got the impression it was sort of like the wire fraud and mail fraud statutes where it's just a jurisdictional hook for you know federal prosecutors to to sink their 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 claws into yep. a defendant where they can't make a better case. It's it's a threat and I think a lot of it also quite frankly is used to inform the rhetoric. They use it because they can. They call yeah. it pirating, they call it stealing because technically it is. It's the same way, I mean, if you think about it, every one of us probably violated a lot earlier today. We probably exceeded a speed limit. That mm-hmm. is illegal. You know, that is a crime. Yet we do it on a regular basis. It's one of those things to sort of keep in mind that, you know, while we, those terms have power from us in the way we associate with them, they, they also can be used in cases where we don't necessarily think it is accurate because well, the, we don't look at it and say, wait a yeah. minute, is that really right? The term crime itself is highly stigmatized. Yeah. You think for criminal acts, everybody thinks of violent crime and stuff like that. But, I mean, you do have ordinary misdemeanors, which are extremely minor, quote-unquote, crimes or, or you know, municipal infractions like traffic violations that are basically a branch of criminal law, you know, I mean, under that definition, there's not a person alive that's not a criminal, you know? So I, I agree that it does exist to stigmatize. I, I question how effective it is. Yeah, I kind of wonder about what it is. And there's, I've actually heard arguments that they said that from an, an IP attorney that actually thought they should remove the FBI warning and should actually be forced to be removed yeah. in front of things because it, it literally shows speech and in a way that it isn't true because of the fact that it's not the, the nature of what it is. But you, you get those arguments, um, I think, in conjunction with anything where sort of people point out the law in order to benefit yeah themselves. But I think the thing key thing to keep in mind is you look at it and say, you know, is, is all file sharing, you know, a violation of this? You know, there's plenty of file sharing which is not copyright infringement. You're gonna no, have file not. sharing when a copyright person says, hey, I'm disclaiming my copyright, or I'm willing to have this file shared, that's fine. You know, you look at like a lot of creative common licenses. Is well, that a file infringement? Of course not. The file sharing protocols have been used for legitimate distribution. I remember yep. World of Warcraft at some point used, I don't know if it was BitTorrent specifically, but a torrent-like protocol to distribute patches so that yep. it wasn't just their servers being slammed all the time on patch day. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, is it's there's a there's a different between the technology and what the technology is used for. I don't think that distinction is always well appreciated yeah. by policy-setting bodies. Not by policy-setting bodies, and I think also in some sense by the general public. I think yeah, you also bump not. into the problem that the average person doesn't necessarily understand that the technology can be used for legitimate or illegitimate purposes. In the same way, virtually anything we have can be used for legitimate or illegitimate purposes. I mean, this is being transmitted. It would be possible for us to commit wire fraud using... Mm-hmm. The, you know, this podcast that is transmission over a wire yep. you know so it could be used for no legitimate purpose we would obviously argue that this is not wire fraud um, you know we're not actually deceiving you we've told you up front that this is you know designed for entertainment and is also probably not very interesting but you know, that, that's the nature of what it is <laughs> question 8 comes from Kayla I think H was her uh, last initial I met her at Startup Connection and I'm paraphrasing what she asked she basically said talk about IP trolls some more I'd love to hear what you guys think about them as patent lawyers it's the IP trolls is a little bit of a hot button issue for me. The reason is is because I hate the term. I do too. It's speaking of stigmatizing. Yeah, um, my take of it is is there's no such thing as a patent troll. Um, there are some you know. There there are people out there who abuse IP laws. I actually think copyright trolling is. A bigger a little bit, you know, problem sort of, than patent trolling. Yeah, one of the issues we get into is there's also IP ogres, which is essentially the <laughs> other side of the IP troll. So you look at it and they say, is a patent troll to somebody who's you know, enforcing an illegitimate patent? An ogre is somebody who's violating a legitimate one and thinks they can get away with it mm-hmm. or beat them into submission over it. So I think the problem you get into when you talk about patent trolls and a lot of these, these are charged terms. We just talked about the idea in conjunction mm-hmm. with crime. 
these are done for political reasons. When we talk about the idea of, hey, there's patent trolls out there, those are being talked about because somebody's trying to get some piece of law changed. That's why people are talking about patent trolls, usually. I think when people think of patent trolls, they're thinking of these 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 phantom corporations that are set up usually somewhere in Texas. They transfer IP <laughs> to it. used to be set up it. somewhere in Texas. Yeah. They transfer a, a patent to it. It's impossible to penetrate the corporate structure and find out who's behind it. And all they do is shake down companies for licensing yeah. fees. And, and again, when you look at that and you say, are these bad actors? Yes. Yeah, these are happens. bad actors. These are abusing patent laws, arguably. You know, do they have a legitimate patent right? Maybe. Um, but what they're doing is they're not necessarily trying to use it in conjunction with the way it's sort of, for lack of a better term, intended to be used. I feel like that kind of thing is mostly solved economically because, yep. and, and this is why I think copyright trolling is a bigger problem. The Patent Act says you're entitled to a reasonable royalty. Yeah. The Copyright Act does not. It says you're entitled to $30,000, whether it's reasonable or not. Yeah. And that's also where you get, a, I think a lot of this is where it comes down to judges' discretion. The hope is, is that judges would get this. It's hard to legislate around this because the answer to it is you almost always end up catching legitimate actors with yeah. illegitimate ones you try to do something. I think it just gets solved, right? Like somebody, fi- I mean, a patent troll files a lawsuit and the first thing you do is call them up and find out, all right, how much money is it going to take to get rid of it? And the amount has to be calculated to be so much more attractive than litigation that you just pay it and go away. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know, I've never looked into the statistics on this, but just based on, you know, how the finances of a typical com- typical, you know, company works, yep. um, you know, I, th- I think that amount's usually not going to be you know, if, if it's so much that would be the end of your company, then you're going to litigate because you're going to go yeah. out of business either way. And that's and I think that's the thing to keep in mind with this is we talk about pen trolls, we talk about bad actors, we talk about people who are, are arguably using the law for their own ends or are basically sort of disregarding the law because they know they can get away with it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep in mind, this is not unique to patent law. People love to talk about the idea that this is patent trolls, this is copyright trolls. I mean, personal example, a, few, you know, a couple months ago at this point in time, I got hit by a hit and run, none of my parked car. You know, so somebody hit ran into my car while I was parked on the street, you know, did some decent damage to it. Is this person ever going to pay for anything? I highly doubt it. Is what they did illegal? Most definitely. Definitely. At the same time, what what do you do about it? It's it's that kind of thing. And did they know they could probably get away with it? Yeah, they probably did. That's probably why they did it. Yeah, um, there's also there's also non uh, trolls are also called non practicing entities. It means they own yeah. a patent, but they don't actually make anything covered by it. And a lot of times, people want to distinguish between trolls and legitimate actors based on whether they actually produce the thing that's patented. But then you're just changing what you're litigating about. Is their product actually covered by the patent or not? So now we're yep. litigating their product as opposed to whether the infringing product is covered by the patent. You got You just added a second lawsuit to one lawsuit. I don't think that actually solves anything. Another problem I think you bump into, quite frankly, with patent trolls, I think a lot of times this is also the market saying we want infringement, so to speak. And the example I use with this, and I think this is a great example, is years ago, there was a, a lawsuit, and it was a patent lawsuit, and it was against a, a sort of major company um, that whose products were pervasive throughout, you know, um, the United States. And the, a small, they were sued by what's arguably a non-practicing entity at the time who had no hope of competing against them. They could never get into the market because the other company completely dominated it. And they won a patent lawsuit. And there was so much worry because the patent lawsuit could potentially shut down um, the, this product that Congress stepped in and actually prevented the courts from imposing an injunction to shut down the system. You look at it and you say, you know, geez, that's an incredibly important product. You know, that, that's the reason we, we have to deal with these patent trolls. Look, they could shut this system down. They could destroy the uni- entire United States infrastructure because what they'd shut down is BlackBerry. <laughs> Yeah, that used to be an incredibly important technology. I think the you know you talk amongst your friends. Does anybody have a BlackBerry device? You know, no. I mean that that kind of thing sort of. Way. You look at this and you say those guys were arguably a patent troll. At the same time, 
did they have a legitimate case? Yes. I mean, a court found that the patent was infringed. It went to this whole level of Congress stepping in, <laughs> saying that this this cannot have an injunction forced against it. How incredibly important this was, and yet we look back at it on retrospect and go, "Wait a minute!" It nowadays it's meaningless in many respects. If they won the same court suit today, so what you kind of bump into is you bump into this issue, which basically says patent trolls, in some sense, come out of willful infringement being successful. We also have patent trolls who serve a legitimate purpose. You may have an inventor who, you know, exhausted his resources getting a patent and can't afford to enforce it, but has a large competitor who is infringing the patent, yeah. and the person can just keep infringing because they know you can't afford to enforce it. Yep. Yeah. And that's the thing I think when you're when you're in IP law and you bump into, I mean, again, are there bad actors? Yes, of there course. are unquestionably bad actors on both sides of this equation. You know, are those bad actors acting illegally? No, they're acting within their rights. They're just using the system in a way that basically shows a sophistication with it that the other side. May or may not have, or may or may not be able to afford. I'd say, I'd say the takeaway from this is that be careful with drawing or, or painting with too broad a brush where patent trolls are concerned. Obviously, you know, people are thinking of a specific type of troll. They're not thinking of other people who would be legitimate actors yep. swept up. And I know the answer is always, well, then just write the, the legislation that's going to fix it more carefully. Good luck with that. Yeah, the, the problem with it is, is they can't. And particularly when you talk about the idea of writing patent legislation, go look up how many you know, Congress people, how many presidents, how many American politicians in history have a patent. One? Well, for presidents, one. Abe Lincoln. Yep. Um, you know, for Congress people, there are a few. Um, you know, and stuff like that. But the the issue you sort of get— It's not a well-understood area of law, even yeah. by lawyers. And, and, you know, the idea of you can't have patent lawyers even necessarily write it because you can get enough of them to agree because they represent parties in conjunction with this. Again, I think the problem you bump into with any of these types of things about what is a patent troll, stuff like that, it's very hard to paint any kind of broad brush. Can you come to us with a particular fact situation and say, this is a troll? Yes. We can say this person yeah. sort of fits what we would say is the very narrow definition definition of specifically a troll based on what they're doing right now. But prospectively writing a definition is really yeah. tricky. And, so. and trying to write something to get rid of them is also really tricky. Okay, question nine. I, I don't have the name for this person. I'm learning from your show that basically all IP offends the First Amendment. I wouldn't quite go that far. Uh, but then you said once that the IP laws were written before the First Amendment. How can Congress both grant copyrights but not be able to ban free speech? So the, the re- thing you're referencing in conjunction with it is that the right to a copyright um, or patent, so the right to protect discoveries and inventions, is physically in the United States. Constitution. Yeah, so, so. The, the way it's written, the, the power that's granted, Congress has granted the power to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Yep. The copyright clause is unusual because it's, I think, the only power of Congress where they both say what the power is and how Congress has to do it. Yeah, via the, the, the system. And it's specifically in the Constitution. It's not an amendment to the Constitution. It's in the Constitution. So that's where you got to think about it is it's It was technically written before the First Amendment. It was written in the original so, Constitution. So to what extent is the First Amendment in conflict? I mean, obviously, on its literal terms, it is. But you have to understand that a Constitution is a, a general framework for for a government, yeah. um, and and all this stuff is going to boil down to a balancing act. Yeah. I know we like to think that balancing is some recent thing that our, our, our courts have made <laughs> up, but you know we, we had a First Amendment in the 1790s, <laughs> uh, and, and the copyright clause too. So this has been something that our government has struggled with, and and honestly, this is why things get uh, punted into court decisions. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's and we just talked about this. It's really hard to proscriptively write exactly how everything should work because you're going to have scenarios that come up. Up, where applying the law exactly as it's written does not administer justice, yep. it administers an injustice. And a, a lot of what we do boils down to having a process in place that is designed to produce fair results and then just hoping that it does. Yep. And I think you know our, our, our legal system in this instance 
Congress can regulate you know, some speech to some extent, uh, but they had to be careful about it. One, one of the things I think is well to just sort of talk about in conjunction with the, the thing with, you know, how can they do both these things? The answer is the First Amendment is not absolute. If you want to learn mm-hmm. more about the First Amendment, definitely go take constitutional law, but you'll discover very, very quickly when you take constitutional law that there are a lot of things you can't do under the grounds of free speech. The obvious one and the one that's always pointed out in conjunction with it, you cannot yell fire in a crowded movie theater mm-hmm. unless there actually is one. That is illegal. Now, is that free speech? You know, you spoke in. That yeah. sounds like free speech. But the answer to it is, is basically they said there's a balancing act. Just you hate can't speech, inciting riots. I mean, certain yep. things you just can't they do. You can't incite riots. You can't have hate speech. You know, there's, there's exceptions that are made to free speech all the time that aren't even as powerful as copyright. These are just acts of Congress. And uh, now question, we have to oh. decide whether or not those are reasonable. And the, the, the criteria the court uses to decide are those limitations reasonable is very specific. And again, we can do an entire constitutional law class on this, and that's what you primarily do learn in constitutional law. Question 10 from Eric X, which I'm pretty sure is a pseudonym, in Cedar Rapids. Hey, my, uh, my stomping grounds. I know you play Hearthstone, but do you play any other Blizzard games? Are you on World of Warcraft? Any favorites? <laughs> I did play World of Warcraft. I have gotten off of it. Um, We've played uh, StarCraft. I played Warcraft. I never played World of Warcraft. Yeah, I played Warcraft 1, 2, and 3. Warcraft 3 is probably my favorite of, of the other Blizzard games. I don't yep. play I was anymore, a, I was a StarCraft guy. Yeah. And, Diablo, and we, we played, played Diablo 3 yeah, StarCraft. I played Diablo. I would say Diablo is probably my favorite of Blizzard games. Yeah. I always loved Diablo. I loved the style of it. I love the... I actually really liked, quite frankly, the world. I just mm-hmm. always thought it was a fun world. Um, strangely enough, as to sort of the way it is, I actually the one thing I always liked the way it played. I liked the way it sort of you played through it on one ease level, and then it made you go up to the next level and yeah. you play through the game again and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I definitely played them. I actually don't do a lot of online major online gaming. The only games I play, which you know, sort of play online, is Hearthstone and World of Tanks Blitz, mm-hmm. um, which I probably play even more than Hearthstone to be quite truthful. Um, I really enjoy Blitz. I find it to be a fun game. It's gotten some issues recently, um, not because of anything I think that the uh, that war gaming has actually done, because I, but I think some of what the fan community is sort of getting a little toxic in certain yeah. scenarios. But next question comes from Jamie K, who claims to be from the quote best coast, but uh, I know for a fact Jamie lives in Sacramento, so she's not even on a Coast. And the best coast is on the Mississippi River. <laughs> she says, this may be straying a bit from real geek stuff, but what is the IP behind fantasy sports? I thought you can't own raw data or facts, so how do you need permission from the real sports leagues to do fantasy? There's a couple things here. One yep. is trademark issues. The NFL still owns the NFL yep. trademark. and you what? Go watch the football game. You'll see that copyright notice. Yeah, and then I think part of this, I haven't never dug into this topic, but my, my hunch is that it has to do with how you get the data. Yep. Where are you going to get the data to run your league fast enough? If you have people at the games, that's extremely expensive. Nobody's going to do that, and you're just duplicating what's already done by the broadcast networks. But then you know, once it's being broadcast or, or even with getting a ticket to the game, at that point, the people who control the games can subject you to contracts and say you're not allowed to take this data yeah. and, and do things. I don't know to what extent that would be truly enforceable. I wonder if you wouldn't have some antitrust issues. Yeah, there. I think that a lot of times in many respects what you're probably doing here is not the fact that you're really paying necessarily for IP permission, but what you're actually paying is for convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, could you grab your newspaper at the end, at the, you know, every morning, every Monday morning, and get all the various stats that are printed in your newspaper and use those to run a fantasy league? Yes. Probably. And that's the way they originally were run. The problem with it is that's complex and it allows yeah. you to only do certain things. You don't necessarily know how much, how many yards every running back ran. You You've only also know certain ones. Publicity rights for the players, which is probably licensed or, or managed through the players' yeah. unions at this point. Yeah, a lot of it. I think the reason you're 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 talking about IP here is more than likely the people who are running the fantasy sports are the ones that are paying for the right to advertise whatever it is associated with it. Yeah. You as an individual are then paying for their service, not necessarily because of the fact that you're paying IP rights, but that's tied up in it. Question number twelve, and this is my favorite one. 
Your show about internet myths got me thinking about the sovereign citizen movement. Do you know anything about it? Is there anything to it? Okay. If you don't know what this is, this is what, this is my opinion, this is utter insanity. Uh, the sovereign citizen movement is this, this incoherent framework of, of theories that um, that it has to do with federal citizenship versus state citizenship at the 14th Amendment somehow – could rob you of federal citizenship depending on how you use your name and the people who buy into this. This is all basically an elaborate ruse to avoid paying income taxes. <laughs> um, but it, it, this this movement, just Google it. Go go look at the Wikipedia page. The, it's this group of, of, of uh, extremists who don't want to pay taxes and argue that they don't have to because they draw this arbitrary distinction between being a, quote, citizen of the states versus a, quote, federal citizen. And I've seen all kinds of stuff on this. They, they, they uh, fetishize capitalization. Like if you capitalize your name in all capital letters, you're not using your real name. And if mm-hmm. you use your name as property properly capitalized, then you're actually referring to this phantom shell corporation the federal government sets up when you're born. And then all of a sudden, you and this corporation – does this sound crazy yet? Hopefully it does because it is. I've seen them argue that uh, if the flag has the wrong kind of fringe on it in court, then you're actually in a court of admiralty and then all these rules don't apply. It is insanity. No, there's nothing to it. <laughs> the federal courts have looked at this and told all of them, that's nice. Uh, you're exalting form over function. Go away. Yeah, and a lot of this I think is to what it is. And, and you see this a lot when it comes to law, unfortunately. The law is extremely complex and extremely large. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just sort of keep in mind, there are law libraries which take up entire buildings that have nothing to do but discussing the law of the United States. What you've got to keep in mind with that is there's a lot of law in there that people don't necessarily understand. In some sense, what this is, in some sense, is elaborate conspiracy theory. Um, oh, yeah. Not necessarily <laughs> saying there's a conspiracy against you, but saying there's a conspiracy for you. Um, you know, could something like this, you know, potentially happen? You know, can the laws interact this way and be interpreted this way? Yes. You know, you can have things that look at it and say, this is the way the law is interpreted. The issue with it is the final arbiter of whether or not that's interpreted correctly is the court system. And if the court system says, no, this is not the way the law is interpreted, that's not the way the law is interpreted. Um, and that's what this really comes down to is legal interpretation. And, and the thing I just wanted to mention briefly in conjunction with this is when we talk about this show about law, there's a lot of law. But ultimately, law is what's written on the book. Interpretation is what it means. And interpretation is almost entirely provided by courts. There's oftentimes some legislative sort of indications of what they think it should be interpreted as. But ultimately, it's the courts. That goes back to our point before about how we kind of divide things up. Yep. The, the, the Congress writes the law and tries to account for situations. But the courts actually apply the law to specific sets of facts. And that's where justice comes from is how do we apply this law in a way that produces outcomes that make sense with what this law is supposed to do. Yeah, and when we start talking about things like that, we start talking about the idea that says, hey, there's all these things out there. Are there laws you can potentially enforce? Yes. There's laws in the books you can potentially enforce. One of my favorite ones, it is illegal in the city of Boston to serve lobster in a company cafeteria seven days a week. <laughs> Why? That is an enforceable law. The reason is, is because lobster used to be seen as these awful little vermin that nobody in their right mind would want to eat. They so they served so them in company wrong. cafeterias. And, you know, basically they're forcing them upon workers. And since this was awful, they said they can't do it all seven days. You have to serve real food one of the seven days. I'm glad someone's looking out for the little guy. Yeah. Now, would you would you think that law is enforceable? Of course that law is enforceable. It's on the law, the books in Boston. It is still enforceable. Is it Assuming it's still on the books. Yeah. At the same time, <clears throat> does anybody actually do that? No. 
So therefore, who cares? Um, yeah, when, so, when, you, when you hear cockamamie legal theories that, that sound crazy, they probably are. And I, th- this is, I think we talked about this either earlier this episode or the prior one. There's this misconception that the law is a spellbook of incantations. Yep. Now, there is magic language in, in certain practice areas, patents yep. and, and, re- and uh, real estate, uh, uh, you know, estate planning. Contracts. Contracts being among them. But there's nothing, you know, with few exceptions, there's no reason why you have to use specific legal language. You can write things in plain English. Nobody does because then nobody knows what it actually means in legal language. Yeah. So, you know, and um, there are certain terms like indemnity that if you want to indemnify somebody, you need to just use the term indemnity. One so, of the issues that you basically get into with it is that ultimately when it comes down to, again, sort of my statement, all the laws interpretation, the reason people try to use current law and language is so it's interpreted the way they expect it to be interpreted as opposed to some way yep. different. Does that mean it's legally binding if it's not written in that language? Yes, it still can be. It's just we may not what understand it means is how. Less clear. That's why legalese is written the way that it's written in paragraphs that are, you know, or sentences that are an entire paragraph long. It's to avoid ambiguity. I have sort of a, a rule of thumb. If a contract contains a pronoun, it's probably done wrong. Like, you know, it's, it, you know there's no hard and fast rules, but you try to avoid things that could be misinterpreted or misconstrued. So yep. anyway, okay, qu- uh, last question, number 13. You guys keep saying that copyright is not about attribution, but there are websites where you can download royalty-free clip art, but they require you to attribute them as to where you got it. What gives? Contracts. Contract law. Um, and that's the key sort of you've got here. The copyright law, the copyright holder has basically said, you can download this, you can use it, subject to the yeah. contract. They've implied a condition by contract that is not otherwise required by the copyright Yep, Act. and that's that's where the attribution comes from. What I tell you to do and where you can potentially check into that, there's oftentimes a little link, at least there should be on the bottom of a lot of these sites, that say ter- that's going to be terms of use, that's going to be here's the legal contract related to it, something along those lines. It's usually very small on the bottom of it. Lawyers love those. We go mm-hmm. and we play with them all the time and look to see what people have, but those may very well specify here are the legal terms of use. And again, the real key to keep in mind with this, and I think we've said this in prior episodes in conjunction with the law, contract is king. One of the things to keep in mind is that basically the contract law, within certain exceptions, is entitled to alter your rights under any other law. Yeah, there are, there are some things courts just won't enforce, yeah. but, but for the most part, courts will try to honor the terms of the parties as best they can understand them. Yeah, if you have a contract for something which says, hey, we're going to do XYZ, even though XYZ normally couldn't be done under the basic law, assuming it's not one of the exception areas that it falls under, they will let that contract stand on the grounds that you are you intended to do that. And that's what a lot of this comes down to. And again, you, you've heard Let's probably say this as well when it comes to a number of issues. Look to the contract. We talked about it in connection with employment law. What's your employment contract say? A lot of these things, and that's where a lot of these specifics come into, what is the contract? Because if the contract is going to potentially change the law in every other scenario that, that exists for every other scenario by the very fact of its existence. Uh, one thing to bear in mind, too, there is free usually ain't free. There's almost always going to be some strings attached as to what you can and can't do. So just because it says it's free clip art, as in free, you don't pay us any money, yep. there's probably you know, going to be some other restrictions on what you can and can't yeah. do if, with, with that. So If it makes it easier, you can think about the idea that the right of attribution is the royalty you're paying. Yeah. And there may be other limitations, too. They may say, yeah, it's free to use, but don't include it in a product you're charging for or something like that. Yeah. But you have to read the contract. So, Okay, that's all the questions we've got. Uh, next time, we're going to discuss, I think, file sharing and BitTorrent is our next topic. Okay, I think that's our plan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you have questions about that or anything else, send them to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. If you like what you hear, give us a review. We appreciate that. We also do other things on social networks. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and Kirk at KirkDMN. Yep. All right. So there it is, the music. It's time to go. 
Uh, that is the official LGG Cantina band, Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.